Okay, so, you know, as the week we're going by, we talk about hypertension and then prevention of uh, coronary artery disease. And today we are going to see the treatment of acute coronary syndromes. And before talking about the treatment, I'm just going to talk about the agent that are going to be used. And then after, it's just going to be a summary of all the agents that are used in an acute uh, setting. And, you know, the big picture, you know, like in the blood, there is white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets. And that uh, hemostasis <coughs> is the physiologic process by which um, the bleeding is stopped. So if there is a cut in the vessel, so for example, if you have an atherosclerotic plaque that is, you know, um, removed from the vessel, then the vessel is going to be injured and you're going to have, you know, bleeding. So in order to stop the bleeding, there is that um, process, physiologic process of, uh, first of all, platelet aggregation. So that's the first stage, is the platelet aggregation which lead to the formation of a plug just to fill you know, the gap where the vessel is injured. And in order to aggregate um, the platelet, they have receptor on their surface, which are called glycoprotein 2A3B. And when those receptors are activated, so you have uh, the fibrinogen that can bind you know, to the receptor into adjacent platelet and form those bridges between uh, the platelet. And the factor that can activate those uh, receptors are collagen, so collagen are found on the endothelial cells, thrombin, platelet activator factor, ADP, and then thromboxane. So all those factors can activate uh, those receptors. And so the drugs that are gonna be anti-platelet agents are gonna interfere at some point with uh, this cascade. Then the next step, so first of all, you have the platelet aggregation, and then you have the coagulation, which lead to the formation of fibrin that is just going to reinforce the plug of, uh, that was formed by the platelet. And uh, I don't know if you saw the coagulation pathways in PATO, or so you know there are two, an intrinsic pathways and an extrinsic pathways, and it's, you know, um, a cascade of factors that are activated. Both cascades are uh, required for the optimal uh, coagulation. In the intrinsic, all the clotting factors are within the blood, and the extrinsic factor requires the tissue factor, which is actually uh, provided from the uh, outside of the vascular system. So when the, the endothelial cells are injured, then the um, smooth muscle of the vessel is exposed and that's where the tissue factor comes from. And so both pathways are required for optimal uh, coagulation. And then, so anticoagulant, of course, are gonna interfere with that cascade. And I'm not gonna ask you to know <laughs> Uh, you know, the cascade and all the activation factors, but just you have to understand that it's just a cascade of factors that are activated. And so the uh, intrinsic pathway is here, the extrinsic is there, and then you see that they both converge at factor 10. And then what is important, so here you see thrombin is able to activate the conversion on fibrinogen into fibrin, and then fibrin um, after it's going to oligomerize and then reinforce the platelet uh, plug. So we'll see um, factors, uh, drugs that 
are actually interfering with anti uh, activating anti-thrombin are going to be um, are going to block this uh, pathway, and also drugs such as heparin that can bind um, to thrombin and factor 10A are going to be uh, anticoagulant drugs. Um, so both pathways, as I said, they are required for optimal production of fibrin. They converge on factor 10A. And as you know, some factors require vitamin K and warfarin, which is the, or the only oral anticoagulant, is actually an anti-vitamin K. It's an antagonist of vitamin K, and that's how it's going to work. And I'm going to you know, explain this in detail in the coming slides. And then let's see if this video works. <laughs> okay, I have to put this on, I guess. I don't know why the sun is giving me a problem. Yeah, I think it's when I put the microphone, it just interferes with the... Let's see if I remove the microphone. We're here. Doesn't seem to be better. No. So you'll have the link, and it's just you know show you how the the, the coagulation um, you know occurs, and so you see you have the platelet aggregation, and then the formation of that uh, fibrin network just to reinforce uh, the plug. So you have you know online you can just click, and it's on uh, Godman and Gilman. Because they also have uh, you see different um, like the mechanism of action of heparin. Um, so, but if we don't have the sun, it's not fun. <laughs> mm. um. So, and then after, so you have the coagulation, and then of course, you know, when the vessel is repaired, you don't want to have, you know, that permanent plug on the vessel, which can lead to the formation of a big thrombus and cause uh, thrombosis. So the, the process that then occurs is um, the... Um, degradation of that um, plug and the protease that is involved is plasmin so plasmin is going to degrade um, the fibrin clock, uh, clock and plasmin derives from its precursor uh, plasminogen and um, so the drug like the thrombolytic drugs they are just going to act by uh, destroying the um, fibrinogen, or actually the fibrin uh, plug that is on the platelet. Now you have some pathological process, and so uh, when those uh, coagulation, for example, if you have a patient that has a bad circulation, so you know the, the blood doesn't flow well, and so then it, it can start um, to coagulate and can lead to a venous uh, thrombosis. And so that's an example here where you see you have the formation of a big uh, thrombus and then just going to narrow the vessel 
and that can lead to a venous thrombosis. Now, if you have a piece of that thrombus that breaks, then with the circulation, it can you know, be carried to the lung and can cause a pulmonary uh, embolism. And so in that case, you have the, uh, the effect that is not at the site where the thrombus was formed. So it's just, uh, and then in the arteries, so for example, if you have the formation of a thrombus in the coronary arteries, uh, of course, that's going to lead to the ischemia of the, of the heart. And uh, if you remember last week when we talked about unstable angina, I said it's you know, caused by aggregation in the arteries. And so that's the process that is involved in uh, unstable uh, angina. So now let's talk first about the um, antiplatelet drug. So I didn't really follow like the sequence of Lenny because I thought, okay, so if we start the cascade of, you know, with uh, the platelet aggregation, I'm just going to start talking about the antiplatelet and then talk about the anticoagulant and then, you know, the thrombolytic agent because that's just the sequence of homostasis. Uh, so as I said, on the surface of the platelet, there is those um, glycoprotein 2B3A uh, receptors that can be activated either by thromboxane or by uh, the binding of ADP. And the drugs that are going to interfere with the platelet uh, activation are aspirin. I think everybody knows aspirin, <coughs> which inhibit the cyclooxygenase, which is involved in the synthesis of thromboxane. Then you have um, clopidogrel, which is Plavix. So if you watch TV, you probably saw the commercial of Plavix, because I think they play it over and over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this one, it's um, interfering with the binding of ADP to its receptor. And then you have the IV antiplatelet that are used in emergency situation. So patients come to the ER with you know, sign of MI is going to receive uh, those uh, antiplatelet agent. The one you have to remember is ABC, Iximab. So if you remember when I say there is MAP, that means there is a monoclonal antibody. So just think about ABC channels, <laughs> and you will remember uh, this one. And so this one just binds to the receptor and just block the receptor itself. Um, again, when you study, I don't know if I mentioned it, try to remember which one are oral agent, you know, which one are IV or parenteral. Uh, same thing with your drug for <coughs> asthma, which one are humular, which one are oral agent. Uh, that's the kind of question you can also have on the NCLEX, you know, uh, like the route of administration of your um, drug. So aspirin, as you know, depending on the dose, has different properties. And at you know higher dose in adults, it's an anti-inflammatory drug. But at the dose of a baby aspirin, when it's given to an adult, it just has the antiplatelet uh, effect. So um, the dose is still in question. What is the right dose to have? You know, to be given uh, as an antiplatelet agent. Um, its efficacy is not a question because, you know, there is uh, evidence base that have shown that if you take a baby aspirin every day, if you are at risk or if you already had 
um, an MI, then it just reduces um, the recurrence. But the, the dosage is still in question. So 75, 225. <coughs> As you know, irreversibly inhibits the cyclooxygenase 1 and 2, and then the synthesis of thromboxane. So if you block that process, you block the activation of the platelet and you block the aggregation. At this uh, dosage in adult, it's only used for the prevention of um, MI. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not in, because the thromboxane has an effect on uh, vasodilation. So if you block the synthesis of thromboxane, then you can promote uh, vasoconstriction. <laughs> it's just the effect of the thromboxane. Yeah. Um, Clopidogrel, Plavix, it's easier probably to remember. Um, as I said, this one uh, is acting on the uh, ADP receptor, so bind to the ADP receptor. If you block the binding of ADP to each receptor, then you block the activation of the platelet, and you block the cascade, and you block the aggregation. It's more effective than aspirin, but it's also more expensive. So for that reason, um, it's only given to patients who are aspirin intolerant or uh, for secondary prevention, just because it's more expensive, so insurance companies are not going to cover it as a first um, choice. It also has a better cardiovascular uh, protection. So some study has shown that to reduce the morbid even um, in people with uh, arteriosclerotic disease and also after uh, MI or unstable uh, angina. Now the last, um, so Plavix and aspirin, of course, you know, they are oral agent. And this one is, um, a parenteral. So these are really um, agents that are reserved for emergency situation. They are um, also they have a rapid onset because it just block the glycoprotein uh, 2B3E right away. So it's not involved in a you know step uh, before. And the one you have to remember, as I said, is AD6Imab, and it's an antibody. So that's why. As I mentioned previously, all the drugs, if you see MAB at the end, that means they are monoclonal antibody. That's what it means, MAB, monoclonal antibody. Then there are two other, and this one, um, Tirofibin. It actually was derived from uh, the venom of a snake um, because they found that in that venom there is an anti-agregant uh, um, chemical, and so they just made um, that drug based on the, on the chemical from in the venom. Is on the take-home? Uh-huh. But it's not stored here? Yeah, but the take-home, you know, it's uh, always for you to learn and read the material, but I know you only have three days for your final exam, so I just make a choice. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, just want to make If you want, I can add it. <laughs> okay, wait, no, no, no. We've, we've already committed it to memory because we can pronounce it. 
so. oh, okay. But you know, when I was doing, I was preparing my slide. I knew that you know you're gonna have only three, four days to prepare. So I just select. But you know, that's the point of the take home. It's just for you to read the material. And so I'm glad that you are gonna remember it. <laughs> because for your NCLEX, you might you know have a question. On um, so clinical use, as I said, all those uh, agents are IV only. And you know, depending on the time that the patient is showing to the ER, the time from the onset to the time is showing, if they are administered like within three hours, that's when they show the better results um, in the patient. And so just uh, prevent ischemia because if they come, you know, the uh, ischemic process starts, that's when they start having, you know, the chest pain. So if you can give them this, you know, right away, then you just reduce um, the risk of a more severe ischemia and damage of the heart. And of course, they are expensive. All, you know, anti antibody recombin recombinant proteins are always uh, very expensive. Adverse effects, because they are, uh, you know, anti-platelets, uh, all those drugs, you know, anticoagulant, antiplatelet, the risk is always bleeding. Um, now the second uh, class of drugs are the anticoagulant. So heparin, I think everybody has heard about uh, heparin. So you have the uh, unfractionated heparin, which is the one you're going to see also in the clinical setting. It's not used at home, it's only used um, IV. It's a very short <coughs> half-life. And it's a mix, it's not just one molecule, it's a mix of uh, long uh, polysaccharide chains. So they are like, these you know, are all sugar and it's like long chain. And to be active, those five um, sugar are required to uh, inactivate um, the clotting factors. And, but the heparin is a very, very long chain. So the way it works is going to bind to um, antithrombin. And if you remember the casket, um, let's see here. So you have antithrombin here that inactivate the conversion of uh, thrombin, uh, the conversion of fibrinogen, because thrombin activates uh, the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. And antithrombin actually block that process. And heparin, by binding to antithrombin, just make it more active. And so it's just going to make antithrombin more active to inactivate the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. And because uh, heparin is such a long chain, it can also bind the complex with antithrombin and thrombin and bind the entire complex, and can also bind and inactivate factor 10. So not only um, you know, the uh, <coughs> thrombin, but can also uh, inactivate uh, factor 10. There is another video, but I think I'm not going to try it. You just play it at home. And so the anticoagulant effect develops quickly uh, within minutes. And this is the difference with the oral anticoagulant. So warfarin, it can take days. Uh, so warfarin is not ideal for emergency situation. This is the one that is used uh, in, uh, for example, pre-surgery just to avoid uh, thrombosis. And 
Of course, adverse effect because it's an anticoagulant, the risk is an hemorrhage. Um, there are also, in some cases, thrombocytopenia. It's rare, but again, uh, potentially fatal. The use, um, that's the preferred um, agent that is used during pregnancy or situation, as I said, you know, before a surgery, just to avoid major uh, thrombosis. It's also adjunct to thrombolytic in MI, so I will tell you the list of drugs that the patient who is coming to the ER with an MI, all the drugs that is going to receive just, you know, to try to avoid the ischemia of the heart and block the coagulation. And then if it's, you know, caused by a thrombus, you just want, of course, to get rid of it. Um, low dose for surgical prophylaxis. And this is just for your information, but it's also used for a rare uh, disorder, so, which is uh, DIC. I don't know if you heard about it. <laughs> so, uh, now, the monitoring is important <coughs> because, you know, uh, the effect is such, uh, it's quick and you want to avoid a hemorrhage, so you have to monitor uh, its effect by monitoring um, the activated partial thromboplastin uh, <laughs> time. So it's just in you know, a reaction in a tube test where they you know, collect the blood, add the thromboplastin, and then see how long it takes to coagulate. A patient that do not have heparin in his blood, the normal value are 40 seconds. Now a patient who has received heparin can take 60 to 80 seconds. If the time is longer than that, that means you have to reduce the dose. You don't need to know the value. It's just also, that can be, you know, unclecked question, but I'm sure once you're gonna do your med search rotation, you're gonna hear this, and you will know by the time you take your NCLEX. Um, um, fortunately, there is an agent that can be used in case of uh, overdosage. So protamine just reverse the action of heparin, and it's given to counteract um, the anticoagulant effect of heparin. Now, there are other heparin, which are the fractionated heparin, so the low molecular weight. The advantage of these low molecular weights is like they are more predictable. Uh, you don't need to monitor um, the APTT with this. And in this case, the chain are shorter. It's just they are just uh, obtained by breaking the heparin into pieces. And they can be administered uh, subcutaneously. So this can be used at home. Uh, doesn't have to be given um, in the hospital. And because they are shorter, they can only bind to um, factor 10A. They bind pr uh, preferentially to uh, factor uh, 10A. And then, you know, 10A is also involved in the cascade. So if you block factor 10A, you're also going to block the coagulation. <coughs> the coagulation cascade. The prototype is enoxaparin. So you see also parin in the name. It really sounds like heparin. And so the advantage, equal equal uh, efficacy. So it's as eff effective as the unfractionated heparin. But it has an increased bioavailability. You know, it can bind to proteins. 
and this one because they are smaller they are not going to be as sticky as the long chains um, they are you know they can be given subcutaneously so uh, can be given at home as longer half-life so doesn't require as often um, administration and doesn't require the APTT uh, monitoring. Clinical use first line for the treatment and prevention of uh, deep venous thrombosis and can also be used in the management of uh, unstable angina. Now this one is just for your information but it was approved uh, last year and so that's the first FDA approved from actually a transgenic animal and so atrin is used for patients who actually um, has a disorder and has a deficiency in antithrombin. So if they don't produce antithrombin, they are more at risk of uh, bleeding. And so they made a transgenic good that is able to produce uh, a recombinant uh, antithrombin in the milk. And then that, that was the first uh, FDA-approved uh, drug from a transgenic uh, animal. And lastly, the only oral <coughs> anticoagulant. So that's the only one. All the other of you know, heparin or this IV, low molecular weight is parenteral also. This one is the only oral. And as I mentioned before, uh, it's a vitamin K antagonist. So because several factors required vitamin K in order to be synthesized, uh, factor two, factor seven, factor nine, and factor 10, you don't have to know all those numbers, but just know that some factors require uh, vitamin K. If you block, uh, if you have an antagonist of vitamin K, you're just gonna block the synthesis of those factors. And so that's why warfarin touch uh, takes longer to have its anticoagulant effect because it just interferes with the synthesis of the factor. It doesn't just act on the factor itself. So in order you know, to block the synthesis, it's gonna take a while and also has a very long half-life. So for a patient to start on Coumadin, you have to tell them the effect is not gonna be uh, right away. And when they stop, because it has a long half-life, the, the effect can still be seen for um, you know, a couple of days after the patient stopped the treatment. So clinical use, as I said, the only oral anticoagulant. <laughs> prevention of uh, venous thrombosis, prevention of systemic arterial embolism, prevention of MI and stroke. So a patient who uh, is discharged after an MI gonna get warfarin um, after just to prevent um, the recurrence of another um, ischemic uh, problem. Prevention of thromboembolism in patients with prosthetic heart valve. So if they, you know, uh, if they have to put a stand, you just want to avoid the coagulation around the medical surgical device. So it's just given uh, preventively. And prevention of thrombosis during each AFib. Adverse effects, bleeding, of course. Um, teratogenic. So it has to be avoided during pregnancy. And it's also important to monitor its effects uh, because it has a long half-life. 
because there is a lot of drug interaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually an interaction, and we'll see on the next slide. So vitamin K uh, will block the effect of warfarin, so it's not recommended. Like a patient who's you know taking, or for example, eating a lot of uh, vegetables, and get the vitamin K from there. Um, so yeah, it's important. Yeah. No, it's actually that's what they do. Uh, if a patient is bleeding and they can give vitamin K just to and interfere. It yeah. Oh, and it works really yeah. Yeah. Because if you uh, restore, you know, like the vitamin K, you know, it's going to be faster. Yeah. Um, and so the time that is measured. Uh, in this case, is the prothrombin time, which is more sensitive to the vitamin K, uh, like the factor that are activated with vitamin K. So it's a different, it's a different time, and there is like international normalized ratio because from one lab to another, you can have variation. So they just normalize it, and the recommended INR is two to three when a patient is on warfarin. And so they are going to monitor at the beginning just to make sure that the dosage is appropriate. So um, drug interaction, it's 99% bound to um, the protein. So if you have another drug that is also um, binding to plasma protein, can displace it from, the, uh, from its site. And so then you have more free drug. If you have more free warfarin, that means higher risk of bleeding. Drug interaction, vitamin, uh, the food that are rich in vitamin K, so uh, broccoli and all those green uh, vegetables. Yeah. No, no, yeah, no. It's just interaction with other drugs. Yeah. Um. So as we mentioned, vitamin K will reduce the effects of uh, warfarin. And then the drug, this is back from last quarter, um, the inducer such as the anti-epileptic drug can reduce the warfarin effect because if they induce the metabolism, that means more uh, warfarin is degraded, so less in the plasma. In that case, you need to increase the dosage of warfarin. Now, most of the patients who are going to get warfarin are going to be on aspirin, are going to be on um, maybe on fibrate. Um, so for those patients, there are risk of interaction with those inhibitors. And so in that case, because they are inhibiting the metabolism of warfarin, it's going to increase the level of warfarin and uh, higher risk of um, bleeding. Yeah, and they are going to start, you know, they are going to taper up, especially that they, they receive uh, parenteral uh, anticoagulant in the hospital, and then when they are going to start giving the warfarin, depending on what else they have, uh, they are going to be very careful, and that's why it's important to monitor um, the prothrombin time 
at the beginning just to make sure that you know the dosage is appropriate and from one patient to another especially after you know undergoing an MI your body is just you know fighting to survive and they really have to be careful. How did the azole and the antibiotics affect the It's just with the sip enzyme. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then that's another. If you combine things, it doesn't always produce the effect that you are <laughs> expecting. Same thing with drugs. So. <laughs> Uh, and so lastly, before the break, um, let's talk about the thrombolytic drugs. So this is the last step of uh, the homostasis. And this is just to remove uh, the thrombus. And again, these drugs are going to be given in emergency situation. Um, and in that case, they act by converting uh, the plasminogen into plasmin. So as I said, plasmin is the one that is going to degrade the fibrin um, clock. And there are different agents. I only listed one for the same reason. Uh, so streptokinase was the first one. Um, it's still used because you know first it was the first one. It's cheaper. But you can have allergic reaction with streptokinase because it's derived from a bacteria, and so you can have antigen, uh, you know, reaction, allergic reaction to it. So alteplase is actually um, uh, the human recombinant uh, plasminogen activator and has a short half-life, so that's the one uh, you have to remember. Adverse effect, again, it's bleeding and clinical use, so it's used for um, acute MI, acute ischemic stroke, so you just want to, um, you know, destroy that thrombus and you want to re-oxygenate uh, the patient, of course, with oxygen, but also by restoring the blood flow. Um, pulmonary embolus and um, CVT. So maybe we should take a break now, or do you want to finish this and then we'll just do anemia, which <coughs> is going to be faster, so we can, because this is just a list of you know all the drugs that are used. Um, so MI, we all know what an MI is. It results from you know ischemia, like the deprivation of oxygen uh, of the heart. And how do you monitor? So the patient is you not know, going to have chest pain. And if he's, you know, smart enough and goes, you know, to the hospital, or if he, you know, can do it right away, he has a better chance to uh, survive. When they get to the hospital, they're going to monitor, uh, do an electro electrocardiogram, and there are two different types of MI: what is called the STEMI and the non-STEMI. In the STEMI, they see an elevation of the ST wave and they don't see it in a non-STEMI, uh, but the majority of the patients who are gonna come to the ER are coming with a STEMI. And they also measure um, some biomarkers that are indicator of um, the, the cell death, 
of the cardiomyocytes. So when the cardiomyocytes die, they are releasing um, troponin and creatine kinase. So by measuring uh, those levels, they have an indication of the severity of um, the ischemic damage. And so the cell death begins within 20 minutes, and then you have formation of scar tissue on the heart, and so that's why after you can have, you know, uh, heart failure or, um, you know, arrhythmia, depending on where the scar tissue form on which area of the heart. Yeah. Because I may never understand an EKG. What portion of the heart is affected with an elevated ST? <coughs> Which portion is more in the ventricle? The ventricle. Yeah. And this is just the difference between uh, non-STEMI and unstable angina. And you don't have to remember this, you know, for my class, but. Um, in actually unstable angina, you have a depression of um, the ST wave. And so you see here, for example, it's an example of a thrombus within the vein. And if you remember, I said that the unstable angina results from the aggregation of the platelet within the arteries or within the vein. And in that case, you, you have, um, you don't have elevation of troponin. So that means the ischemic damage is not there yet. Uh, compared to uh, STEMI, yeah. Can you see that ST elevation in before the MRI, like in that just stable angina? Mm -hmm. so they only see it when it's, yeah, yeah, no. And so the management, so as I said, 90% of the, you know, myocardial infections are STEMI, and, you know, the thing that they have to do is oxygen. If the patient is still conscious, then you receive aspirin right away or if it, you know, even if it's during uh, the transfer from his home to the hospital and the ambulance is going to receive uh, aspirin. Uh, for the chest pain, they give nitroglycerin and if the pain is, you know, doesn't go away with uh, nitrate, then they're going to give morphine and then beta blocker for the rhythm. And then at the hospital, they're going to start the thrombolytic uh, therapy, you know, to dissolve the clot. And if it's not enough, um, they can do um, a PCI, so put a stent or do an angioplasty just um, to bypass, you know, the thrombus and repair. And then after discharge or, you know, still, you know, after uh, the treatment of the thrombolytic agent. So aspirin, every patient who's going to be discharged is going to get aspirin. Um, they are going to get uh, some heparin, so at the hospital they're going to get the IV, but at home they can uh, do the um, fractionated, uh, the low molecular weight uh, heparin. Oral anticoagulant, antiplatelet agent, uh, this is still, you know, that's in the hospital. And then if the patient has hypertension, so they have to be monitored to see if they have a history of hypertension, they will receive an ACE inhibitor. So in that case, when we talk about competing indication, um, I said that, you know, thiazide diuretic is for, you know, the majority of the patient, but patient who, you know, has an MI, they will receive an ACE inhibitor because it just uh, reduces the morbidity um, in those patients. 
they're also going to monitor the cholesterol level. So if the patient has high cholesterol, then uh, is going to be uh, receiving statin. And then for those who have ventricular arrhythmia, they will receive an antiarrhythmic, um, and in most cases, going to be lidocaine. And then for unstable angina and non-STEMI, the difference is they don't get uh, the fibrinolytic uh, therapy because that means they are a stage, you know, before and they don't need it. And they only get, uh, they only give the um, IV antiplatelet agent uh, to patients that are at high risk of, you know, having um, coagulation. That's the difference. But most of the time, the one you're going to see are going to be um, the STEMI. So now we can take the break. <laughs>